Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, for His honor and glory, the blessing of our marriages, the adorning of the gospel, the stopping of blasphemy by adversaries and enemies, bless the truth of Your Word to these people and to me, that we might put forth the effort that we already know we ought to put forth, that you will so convict us by your word and spirit that we will do the good things toward our spouse that you have taught us internally in our new nature and in the word of God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This series of messages about marriage, I simply want to remind you about the importance of it and encourage you from God's word to put forth greater effort to be a better spouse. You already know how to do it. There are some rules in the Word of God that I have given you and that I will give you yet that are profitable. But you already know what to do. I know that because of your history. You're married. You put on good behavior for a while. That's why you got married. You deceived, I mean, you seduced, I mean, you won another person. So you know how to do it. You know how to be super kind, super happy, spiritually minded, romantic, patient, forgiving, giving, selfless. You know how. I know it from your history. I also know it from a what if study. What if your present spouse were to die? I know that it wouldn't take you very long to relearn those old habits of how to be kind, gracious, loving, romantic, forgiving, gentle, and good. And you would win yourself another spouse. Do you know how condemning that is? We know what to do. Will we humbly submit to God's Word and the sinner that we've chosen to marry, and love them the Bible way. It's quiet. That's the truth of the matter. You don't need a whole long list of things to do. You already know what to do. Because you've already done it, and you would do it again. How can I, from His Word, by His Spirit, provoke you in a few minutes to go do it? Make a better effort at it. Put forth more energy toward it. Today is unusual. We are strongly focused on two phases of salvation, the vital and the legal. The vital phase of salvation was covered this morning in looking at the difference between regeneration and conversion. Regeneration is the vital phase of salvation. When paramedics check for vital signs, they are checking to see if life is there. And... When we're elected, that doesn't give us life. We don't even exist, except in the covenant plan of God. When Jesus died on the cross, we did not yet exist, but a legal payment was made for our sins to be blotted out. Vitally is when the Holy Spirit, after our conception in this world, gives us a new nature. And so we look for vital signs. And so that was the first service. We just had the Lord's Supper, And that looks at the legal payment that was made for us. 
Observing the Lord's Supper is all about the legal phase of salvation, by His death for us. Now I'm preaching to you about marriage and its importance, and it fits the two phases perfectly. Why did Jesus die for you? Because He felt sorry for you? No, that is not taught in the Word of God. Why did Jesus die for you? To present to Himself a glorious bride, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing? Yes, that is taught in the Bible. But let's go further. Why did Jesus die for you? To be a real husband. To be a real wife. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ giving himself on the cross. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. What are the good works in context? In Titus chapter 2. In verses in verse 2, it's how aged men ought to conduct themselves. In verse 3, it's aged women. In verses 4 and 5, it's what young women are to be taught, and it includes to love their husbands, to be chaste, obedient to their own husbands. And then it tells young men in verse 6 to be sober-minded. Verses 7 and 8, how ministers should conduct themselves. Verses 9 and 10, how employees should conduct themselves. This is why Jesus died. It's another level of the reason why He died for us. He wants us to be the children of God in this world, and one of the ways we show it is how we conduct ourselves in our marriages. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. That Titus chapter 2 was why Jesus died. Titus, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is going to be why we're born again. Verse 10. Ephesians 2 is about being born again because it starts off this chapter with the words, And you hath he quickened, which is the new birth. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So why are we born again? Because God felt sorry for us? No. We are redeemed by the blood of the cross, and we are regenerated by the power of the Holy Ghost for Jesus Christ to present to Himself a spotless bride, and that we would live like the children of God in this world. And what we're talking about right now in this context in this sermon, is that we would be the spouses we should be. That is why He died. That is why He regenerated you. Because it says so. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. And I have shown you in the first four sermons in this series, that from Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we have God's ordained rules for how we should treat each other in marriage. God's ordained it. He's regenerated us. What is holding us back? Very simple. Lazy. Selfish. Hateful. Cruel. He isn't holding us back. He's given us a written manual. He sent His Son to die for us, that we would be zealous of good works, and He's regenerated us, working in us 
both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Every one of us can please God in our marriages. What more could He do for us? In writing, inside, His Son's death, the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost. Conversion. Anyone need to be converted in their marriage? Can you be a little bit better? I'll do it for you. We're the happiest we've ever been in 40 years. Can I do better? I hope that you're all raising your hands inside. I want to be a better wife. I want to be a better husband. I want to do it for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. I want to do it because God's ordained for me to do it. I want to please Him by how I treat my spouse. We are here to provoke each other to love and to good works like in marriage. Hebrews 10.24 Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You say it's not really about marriage. Uh huh. What I'm telling you right now is to get you moving in your marriage. You already know how to do it. Remember, that's why you're married. And you would do it again. That hurts. You know, your spouse is sitting there. Yep. They would do it again if I died. I wonder why they can't do it while I'm alive. That's horrible. Do you remember what you were like? Remember the sweet nothings? Remember all the notes? Remember the kindnesses? Remember the dates out? Remember eating out? Remember talking? Asking questions? Learning about the other person? You know how to do it. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For ye are bought with a price. What was the price? The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Why did Jesus die for you? For you to be a better spouse. If you leave this service, and I do love the way the Lord arranges it, and to be His ambassador, if you leave this service and are not a better spouse, you are a hypocrite, and you have defiled the Lord's table. Because you were supposed to examine yourself as you came to that table, and I'm helping you do that right now. I'm helping you go through the examination process by asking you to think about your marriage. You just took the bread and you took the cup of His broken body and shed blood. Look what it says. Ye are bought with a price. There should be a result. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our spouses have the right to our bodies. Our spouses have the right to our spirits. Let's love them. Serve them. Help them. Give to them like we should. Hebrews 13. How serious is the Lord about these kind of things? Well, the church cemetery at Corinth was larger than it should have been given the actuarial analysis of the congregation. Because it tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.30 that in that church there were many weak, many sickly, and many were already dead in the church cemetery. Because they had not examined themselves sufficiently and got their lives in line with what the Lord expects from us. And, and at this time, it's just marriage. Hebrews I'm still on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I love these two verses. Verse 20 and 21. Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Make you perfect in every good work to do His will. His will on how we should treat our spouses is found in the Bible. The goal of His death was to make us perfect to do His good, to do every good work to do His will. So everything that you have ever done toward anyone, everything you have ever done toward the spouse that you're male, married to, rekindle that affection. Redo those things. What does the Bible say about how to restore a relationship back to first love? Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent that you're not there right now, and do the first works. Do the things you did in the beginning. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. There is conduct towards your spouse that God considers well-pleasing. There is conduct towards your spouse that God considers treachery. That's the word that's used redundantly, repetitively in Malachi chapter 2. Treachery. Hiding in your marriage so that you have a dysfunctional marriage as measured by God. God does not care what you think about marriage. God does not care if you don't know how to communicate. Grow up and get over it. God doesn't care about any of those things that you use as excuses. God cares that you do it His way. That's all He cares about on every subject, including marriage. And so He says, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Jesus has died for us. The Holy Spirit's regenerated us. We have all the ability to do these things. The only way you'll ever be happy is to get over yourself and to pour yourself into another person. That brings happiness. If you sit around waiting for the other person to do something for you, it will never bring happiness because that is selfish. That is lazy. That is childish. That is wicked. That is contrary to the Word of God. Jesus Christ said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That rule works. That rule is wonderful. It works in every part of marriage. Take it as far as you want. Let's embrace this topic of marriage with the zeal of those in Nehemiah chapter 8 that wanted to celebrate. Why did they want to celebrate? Because they understood the word of God that was preached to them and it told them that they had a feast that they hadn't been keeping for about a thousand years in Israel. The Feast of Booths. It meant they had the glorious privilege of going out in their yards, pulling together a few branches of trees, making a little hut, and staying there for a week. Would you get excited if I lay that on you next Sunday? Would I get excited in between preparing for it? No. But they did. Because it's what the Lord wanted them to do. Let's have the attitude of Cornelius. Peter, I have all my friends and my whole family here to hear whatsoever is commanded thee of God. Now lay it on us. Great attitude. And that's what we ought to have right now. You ought to be itching to get out of here. Poor choice of words, maybe. To get out of here and to embrace your spouse and to love them this day more selflessly 
than in the past. To communicate, to give them what they're looking for. God doesn't care that you give to your spouse what you're looking for. He doesn't care. Because love is giving to a person what they're looking for. Give it to them. Let's show the Lord that we really appreciate His shed blood and His broken body. How do we do that? By singing dripping from the cross? Eh, a little bit. But how about going home and really loving our spouse in Jesus' name and for His honor and glory? It's so exciting. I mean, it's one of the greatest gifts He's given us. You men know that I teach you and press you to advance as fast as you can professionally. Maybe too hard sometimes. Maybe not hard enough at other times. But when we go to the book of Ecclesiastes, where does that job fit in under the sun as being important? Is it before or after marriage? It's after. 9-9 is about marriage. 9-10 is about our jobs. I hope that none of you men have a mistress going to school, going to work, or something else that gets more of your attention and effort than it should get relative to the wife God gave you. And by the way, if she's a believer, you're married to the daughter of God. A great marriage filled with happiness, excitement, and romance benefits you. Marriage is one of God's great gifts to us while we're on earth. Individual potential is best achieved using God's means for excellence. What is God's means for excellence for a man? A help. Meet for him. Who is a help? Meet for a man. Buds? Are you kidding? A wife is what God created. God didn't create Steve and send him to Adam. God created Eve for Adam. Use that wife. Embrace her, love her, pour into her. Let her be your sounding board. Hold her. Talk to her about your fears, your hopes, your dreams, your frustrations, your disappointments. That's the one God gave you to do that with. Two are better than one, the Bible tells us. Can that better be shown and illustrated than two people in marriage? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 gives us four reasons. I'm not going there right now, but it gives us four reasons why two are better than one. Being married is better than being single by four measures at least in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. If two are better than one, and I believe it because the Bible says it, what about two spouses that are wild for each other? If two are better than one, makes life wonderful. A great marriage filled with happiness, excitement, and romance pleases God. First of all, it benefits you, then it pleases God. Our spiritual relationship with God suffers if we do not have the proper marriage relationship. God doesn't hear prayers of men who do not honor and treat their wives very special. If they don't have time for their wives, if they don't talk to their wives, God doesn't hear their prayers. You live a powerless, spiritless life and you're a loser and you're going to continue to lose until you love your spouse. That's the word of God. He measures every tear of every woman. Malachi chapter 2, Psalm 56 and verse 8. 
God has all the tears of women in a bottle. He writes them in His book. And if your wife is crying outside, inside, because of neglect from you, sorry, it's treachery, and God is not going to bless your life. Do you want to be blessed? Honor your parents. You know that one, right? Love your wife. The Bible way. Selflessly. Romantically. Energetically. Blow her mind. Thriller. It's hard preaching up here. I don't know what you all are thinking. You know, maybe it's hard listening sometimes, but listen, i got to look over there every now and then to make sure she's still here. But it's the truth. These, these things are the truth. Satan's device in the very beginning was to do what? Wiggle into a marriage. Wiggle into a marriage. A great marriage filled with happiness, excitement, romance benefits others. It's, a, you know, it's one of the basic human relationships of authority and how authority can work so well. The man's in charge. The woman is the responsive follower. And when it works right, it's beautiful. And so others benefit by just seeing it being practiced the way that it should be. All other authority relationships derive power to some extent from marriage. We expect our children to wait for marriage, so we should show them a good one. We can reprove our generation's despicable marriages by displaying a godly one that is opposite sex. Men, don't let your jobs or anything else become more important than your wife. Men need to guard against their careers. In Genesis 2.18, when God said about Adam, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will give him another job. It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll give him overtime at time and a half. No and no. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And he made Eve. Men who emphasize their careers, school, hobbies, whatever, inordinately show more than diligence in business. They show something bad in mistreating their wives. They show that they've missed the true riches in life. They must not be able to manage their wife. They don't know how to appreciate a woman. It's sad. It's sorry. It's terrible. Inordinate inordinate affection is devotion to business and work that neglects the marriage. Consider you're too exhausted for marital activities. There's a constant postponement of marital plans, of things you're going to do with your spouse. There's mental preoccupation with business so that you don't have time for her mentally. There's a priority on monies for professional pursuits instead of her. You only have a single topic of conversation. Your greatest enthusiasm and interest is for these this outside thing called a profession, job, school, so forth. You'll pay any price for meeting professional approval. You'll take extensive time away from your chief companion. Look at Deuteronomy 24.5 and see if we can't nail down that God gives us a priority about work and wife. Work and wife. It does change over time a little, but the principle is established in the first year of marriage. How long should a honeymoon be? Honeymoons are really a stupid invention. 
The only people that basically think they're smart haven't been married and haven't been on one. It takes time to get to know another person in the ways that would make a honeymoon excellent. You don't do that because you said the words, I do. You should say, along with I do, I am stupid. Because you don't know anything yet. You don't even know what you're saying I do to. And I'm, I, marriage is a great gift from God. But a honeymoon a year later, yeah, you'll be able to light candles at 10 feet. All those of you that are married know what I'm talking about, and those that don't are wondering what's got into the pastor. Okay, Deuteronomy 24, 5. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. The draft does not apply to men in Israel, in God's nation, when he was in charge of the laws. They weren't drafted. They were in their first year. Neither shall he be charged with any business. We understand that as business away from home. Because travel in those days took a long time. You couldn't jump in the car and drive to Sparkle City and be back before bedtime. That's Spartanburg, by the way. It's a real sparkly city to the east of Greenville. I'm so thankful to be in Greenville County and to live in Greenville. So now you understand how I meant those words. Couldn't be charged with any business. But, as opposed to being at war, as opposed to being off in business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he hath taken. This is the Lord God of heaven. He knows that that little woman needs some cheering up. Because after two or three days living with you, she needs cheer. And I don't care who you are. You're a shock to her system. And so the Lord gave them a year for the man to cheer up his wife. And this is the Bible. To cheer up his wife. When was the last time you cheered up your wife? Now, cheering up your wife was not supposed to end after a year. Don't try to interpret the Bible that way. It it just changes a little bit in its priority. But after a year, you can serve in the military in those days. Or you could be charged with business in Spartanburg. But you still needed to cheer up your wife Because you're supposed to be honoring her, cherishing her, nourishing her, loving her, doting on her, letting her love ravish you. Proverbs 5.19 And so, don't let anything get in the way of your wife. Business is the means God ordained to support a wife and other goals. It's not an end for a life. It's not the final goal of a life. When marital conflict occurs, or when they're in the flesh, a man will run off to his job and justify himself. I'm diligent, I'm faithful, I'm advancing, I've been promoted, but his wife is suffering and the Lord puts her first. By this verse, by Genesis 2.18, by Ecclesiastes 9 and the order of verses 9 and 10. Lord help us. Nobody in here wants to go to work more than I wanted to go to work in another life. Acts chapter 20. Just give me a few more minutes. Jesus died. Jesus died 
for you to be a better husband or a better wife. The Holy Spirit regenerated you, working a new nature in you that is not selfish, not lazy, not proud, but humble, loving, gentle. Why don't we just get them in order? But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. Would those help a marriage? Wow! Those would help a marriage. Those are wonderful. But you got to have the Holy Spirit in you to, for the energy to do those things. To willing to do of His good pleasure. We're regenerated in order to be good spouses. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. It's an unusual verse in the latter part of Acts because it's in the red writing. In your Bibles. Because Jesus Christ spoke these words, part of them in this verse. I have showed you, Paul speaking, I have showed you all things. Paul taught the whole counsel of God and every minister ought to teach the whole counsel of God. This is Paul to the elders of the church of Ephesus. Notice, if you go back up, verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Verse 20, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. This is what a minister ought to do. And so he says here in verse 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, and this is what's in the red writing, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is a rule for marriage. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The lust of youth, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, Those three things war together, conspire together to make you think that it is getting that would make you the happiest. That is wrong. That is wrong on the authority of God's Word. And everyone who has been married more than a few days know that it's wrong. The greatest privilege, blessing, happiness, joy is giving in every part of marriage. Jesus said it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Especially for a child of God that has that new nature in him that wants to serve. That wants to do things for others. Jesus taught the rule. It has to be absolutely true and very necessary for you. If Paul concluded his most intimate instruction to the church at Ephesus this way, it must be key. This is especially true for a child of God who has that new nature. Real love is not getting, it's giving. Both parties benefit far more than any other way. If both parties are looking to give to each other, which just brings them right smashing in together in a wonderful, glorious way, each trying to outdo the other by giving. If you hold back one little bit, waiting to get more, I want more, she needs to do this, or he needs to do that, if he would do that, then I would be a more loving wife. All that nonsense the devil spews and the fiery darts that affect your heart but if you, if you were coming together as, I want, I'm going to give. I'm going to love her. I'm going to love her the way that Jesus Christ loved the church. Does that sound scriptural? 
I'm going to submit to him and reverence him the way the church is supposed to submit to Christ and reverence him. Does that sound scriptural? Now, what if both parties did that? We have a perfect marriage. As perfect as it can be for two sinners. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, charity suffereth long and is kind. 15 phrases defining the word love or charity. How much in there is getting in those 15 phrases? This is the word of the Lord. So this is a rule I'm giving you right now. What can you do for your spouse as soon as I say amen? And sir, would you please say amen? What can you do for them this afternoon? Now, Charlie's told me that I shouldn't take my wife for a walk on Pettigrew Street or Boyce Avenue. It might not be the best place in Greenville to go, especially after dark. So we'll drive it. It isn't a bad part of town nowadays. Is that where Furman University used to be? Oh, I don't. Somebody mentioned that as a possibility at break time. Because those, those streets are named, his, his, uh, his middle name and his last name, Pettigrew Street and Boyce Avenue. Just referring to what you learned this morning about a man from the Screvens Baptist Church in Charleston that came to Greenville after a pastoral stint in Columbia and was one of the professors at the seminary called Furman to raise Baptist ministers. We'll find some place to go, won't we? Oh, yes. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave. Youth, all of you young people, you don't know how to think this way yet. You're too young. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. We love you. We hope that by God's word, by God's spirit, you will come to know that giving is more important than getting. And may the Lord bless you to learn it and to put it into practice. Giving is more blessed by pleasing God better and by satisfying you better. If your spouse never gave back to you, it is still more blessed to give than to receive. But can you imagine if two spouses were independently obsessed to love the other and give? I'm speaking to a bunch of married couples where both the husband and the wife are converted and together in a Christian marriage. Just think if the two of them were obsessed about giving. Wow. Satellites would be picking up heat emanating out of the Greenville area from various addresses. One more point. I'll try to make it brief. Feelings, love, and respect are not needed. Here's how it works. Here's, how, here's the things I've heard, and here's what people say inside. I just don't love her anymore. I never really loved him when we got married. I just don't feel right about him. I don't have any feelings for her like I used to. I don't have any respect for him. I still have strong feelings for another woman. The old fire is just not there anymore. 
She has hurt me so much I cannot love her. Those are all the fiery darts of the devil. They're lies from hell. Let me take just a couple. I don't love her anymore. Then repent of your sin and start loving her the next second. Because love is a commandment. Husbands, love your wives. I never really loved him when we got married. Who cares? We don't, and God doesn't. But you're now married. So love him. I don't have any respect for him. God doesn't care if you respect him or not. Respect his office and love him anyway. There are simple solutions to all these lies. We're we're creative. The human heart and mind are creative to come up with junk to excuse less than the best marriage. Repent. You don't need to respect him. That's why I say feelings and love and respect the way they're used in these little lies. It's lust. It's bitterness because you don't, when you say you don't respect your husband, you're bitter over something. Flush your bitterness. Forgive him. Love him anyway. The Lord loves you anyway. And trust me, you have offended him 10,000 talents worth and your spouse has only offended you 100 pence. Do you know how good it could be today? Just to forgive each other and run together. And clean up that garage. This popular myth is based on the predominantly American fantasy of romantic love. In the Bible, parents arranged marriages without feelings. Was divorce popular? Nope. Most of the world's population still practices this method to some degree, or much of the world's population. Americans promote girls choosing husbands by infatuation. Is divorce popular? Absolutely, because it's based on nothing. It's based on an illusion. Consider the perfect family, with Susie dating many boys, discarding them by feelings, telling Daddy what to do, and marrying the one she thinks she loves. We have disaster on our hands. The frivolous attitude toward marriage reflects the immaturity of romantic love. The record speaks for itself. Voluntary romantic love does not make marriages. It is a commitment to the Word of God, by the grace of God, to love your spouse according to the Word of God that makes a marriage. Love is a commandment. Love is not a feeling. Love is a commandment. Love is not a circumstance. Love is a commandment that you can make happen right now, not something that you wait to have happen to you. You make it happen. It's a choice to love. That's why the Bible can say, set your affection on things above. Now that is by far the hardest love to ever choose is to set your affection on things above because we still have our flesh that does not want to do that, but we are able to do it. So we're commanded to do it. Romantic love is emotional feelings of attraction and desire for a source of pleasure. Do you want another L word for that? Lust. What is popularly called love today is actually not much more than lust. Such love... You know, desires motorcycles, guns, clothes, animals, jobs, men, and other women. Because it's lust. Samson loved a Philistine. Do you really want to call it love? What does the adulteress say in the book of Proverbs? Let us take our fill of loves. 
until the morning. There wasn't any love there. That was lust. Extreme preaching, proper preaching, Bible preaching condemns this worldly excess and fantasy and presents God's emphasis. God doesn't condemn feelings, but they cannot be the focal point of a marriage. We don't wait for feelings to do what is right. We do what is right, and God gives the feelings. Bowels of affection are not evil. We just want to arrive at them the right way. Solomon describes love as an emotional feeling in the Song of Solomon. Paul commanded the saints to have such affection for each other. But feelings can be extremely deceptive if they're not kept subordinate to doing what is right. The heart of man is not to be trusted, yours or mine. Don't wait for feelings. I just don't feel like it anymore. Who cares? God doesn't care. You're so lazy and selfish. That's the only reason you don't care. You don't have the feelings anymore. You're lazy and selfish. Flush the, flush the laziness, flush the selfishness, and all of a sudden, you'll get some feelings back. Go invest in the other person. It is such a simple rule, and I repeat it over and over, that the whole issue is this. Jesus died for you, and the Holy Spirit regenerated you, to go give to another person that you married and promised that you would give to. And it's your best, it's the best choice you'll ever make in your life. You'll benefit by it. God will benefit by it. The gospel will benefit by it. Your children will benefit by it. It's enormously blessed. The first great error made with this myth about marriage, that it needs feelings, love, and respect, is that marriage requires these feelings. That's a first great error. That marriage has to have those kind of feelings. And it doesn't. It has to have right action. The love required in marriage is sacrificial action regardless of feelings. Love that makes marriages is self-initiated giving that precedes feelings. If actions in marriage are based on feelings, the marriage is not going to last. Because feelings are so volatile and variable. Marriage requires acts of love, not feelings of love. True love is right action. How many ways do you want me to say it? All that we need to remember, I'm repeating myself, all that we need to remember is the Lord's Supper. Why did Jesus die for us? And why were we born again? That as the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, we would be the most selfless, the most energetic, the most romantic, giving, gentle, gracious, kind, loving spouses that we can be. How's that? Are you ready for an amen and get out of here? Oh, you poor spouses. Sherry and I will try to make up for you. The second error made with this myth is that such feelings cannot be created. You know what? Then you become a fatalist while you sit around waiting for the feelings to come back. If the feelings would just come back, I would like my marriage again. Bring them back. Investing yourself in another will bring those feelings, especially as you pray for them. Our hearts... The seed of affection will follow our treasures. The Bible tells us that. So where you make your investment, your heart will follow. We are commanded to be actively ravished with our wives' love. Proverbs 5.19 I thought the best verses on marriage for today were Titus 2.14 1 Corinthians 6.20 Hebrews 13.20 and 21 in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 that I didn't give you. 
Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead, and they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ want us to do? Love our spouses. Let's have the best church that we possibly can, by the grace of God, the working of the Holy Spirit, the following and obedience of his word, by this afternoon, loving our spouses. There's not much that you can do with regeneration and conversion. It's a settled fact of the Bible. But there's a lot you can do with your spouses. Okay, what's the average bedtime of this church? Let's say it's 10.30 and it's 1.30, nine hours. Do you know how much fun you can have in nine hours? <laughs> to the glory of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the obedience of his word. Amen. 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 Please stand.